Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the Essential X Lapsed Episode Three, where, believe it or not, we're going to be talking about the third issue of the X Men here. So uh, let's get right into it here. This is X Men number three, out of January 1964 cover date. So we're already into the second year here. How about that? Stories called Beware of the Blob. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Paul Reinman, colors by someone. Letters Artie Simek, cover price 12 pennies. And, uh, well, we open with another training session, of course. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I'd totally forgotten that they actually treated this place like a training facility. And uh, not just a base of operations during these early issues. Now here, we have Hank firing bags full of sawdust at his male teammates for them to dodge, destroy, or catch via their extra powers. When the dust, well, sawdust, settles, Professor X observes that Scott, who was actually called Scott here for the first time, he looks kinda down. When asked why, Cyclops blames his dour mood on his dread optic blast powers. You see, he's in constant fear and worry that he won't be able to control his awesome abilities and uh, may harm the people closest to him. Now, Jean tries to give him a pep talk. Actually, she basically just tells him not to be that way, which is a definite sign of love, isn't it? Then, off to the side, Iceman reminds us that he is just 16 years old by busting a sawdust bag that Beast had been juggling with his feet which leaves poor Hank covered in the stuff, and poor dude just happens to be very allergic. So, then Angel comes to his aid, bowling Bobby over with another bag of dust. Bobby responds by coating Angel's wings in slush. Again. Cyclops then blasts the feather sickles off of Angel. Again. Next, it's Jean's turn to train, and her exercise is a little bit different than the fellas. Um... Now you see, she has to guide an object through various shaped and sized practice forms on a modified coat rack, or maybe it's a modified spinner rack, I don't know. She's able to use her powers quite deftly and uh, suggests that the professor is taking it easy on her. To which the uh, bipolar baldy yells, Silence! Because he's detected yet another mutant. We watch as he sends a thought probe throughout the city. Which city? It don't matter. He tells his charges to get into their street clothes and head out to look for this new character. Angel hopes that it's another swell gal like Jeannie, and I tell you, boy, is he going to be disappointed. We check in with the fellas as they get into their civvies, and uh, they all want to be paired with Jean for this little outing. All but Cyclops, that is. You see, he cannot dare get close to another person because he possesses a most dread power. In the study, Xavier is telling Jean that she must be careful, because this new mutant may be dangerous. Jean tells him, eh, don't worry about it, and and she reveals that she plans to have Scott by her side the whole time. Here, um, well, things get a bit icky. Professor X thinks to himself that he can't help but to worry about Jean, because she's the one that he loves. Um, But alas, this is a love that cannot be. You may be thinking that might have to do with the great age difference between them, the fact that Jean might not be legal age yet, but no. The reasons that Xavier gives are that A, he's the leader of the X-Men, and B, he's confined to a wheelchair. Ah, okay. I tell you, I don't remember this attraction being quite this blatant. (laughs) I, I guess I just skimmed over it the first time. Now, I think it'll be a very long time before this gets revisited, uh... 
probably uh, decades, hopefully decades. Um, now, also, it's a good thing that Jean's telepathy hasn't yet kicked in. Otherwise, she'd uh, probably and hopefully be pretty skeeved out right now. Anyway, Jean wants to go with Scott, but Warren has other plans. He swoops in, picks up Jean as though he's Donkey Kong, and then whisks her away to his convertible and drives away. Hank and Bobby, perhaps the slowest runners east of the Mississippi, walk after him protesting. Hank refers to Warren as the, quote, glamour boy of their group. Which, I mean, yeah, probably. That's probably true. I I just am tickled at the fact that they actually called him that. So, lickety-split, we're in the city to seek out this new mutant. First, we follow Hank, and he witnesses someone who appears to be burning a piece of paper with just his hands. Turns out, upon closer inspection, that this fella is just doing that old trick where you would, like, hold a magnifying glass up to, like, burn ants. And it makes me wonder if this was originally going to be ants and not paper, but maybe they thought about uh, a less violent (laughs) and extreme uh, trick for this fella to play here. Uh, Next, Hank sees a man hovering in the air by a nearby skyscraper. And so he takes off his shoes and runs up the side of the building to get a closer look. And I tell you, this is a really cool use of uh, Hank's power here. It's too bad they didn't really do more with it. Because the whole gimmick here is that he's able to use the cracks between the bricks to jam his ape-like toes into and, and climb with them. Anyway, toward the top of the building, he discovers that it's just a man setting up an advertising display while standing on a slat of glass. So, not a flying man at all. Next, we shift somewhere else in the city, and we check in with Cyclops. He's at a nearby carnival. He watches as a carny performs a trick shot exhibition and assumes that this fella might be the new mutant. Nope, it's just a con man. Cyclops melts this guy's gun just to be a jerk. Then he sees the blob. Professor X sees through Scott's cursed eyes and proclaims that the blob is this new mutant. Cyclops watches the blob's exhibition, and a half-dozen volunteers from the crowd attempt to move him. Uh, Not Scott, that's the blob, of course, and uh, they cannot because the blob is immovable. This doesn't really impress Scott all that much. He figures that maybe the blob is just a big fat guy. You know, maybe he's just too heavy to be moved. Then, a cowboy named Tex, because of course he is, shows up to pump the blob full of lead. He unloads his rifle into the blob's belly, and uh, it doesn't even leave a mark. Someone in the crowd cries foul, suggesting that old Tex was just shooting blanks. Don't tell his wife that. Then, the blob expands his chest, expelling the shells from his blubber, proving that he is, indeed, impenetrable. After the show, Cyclops heads over to the blob's trailer, where he attempts to recruit him into the X-Men. Upon hearing this, old Fred Dukes immediately mocks the X-Men for their geeky costumes, because, of course, we need at least one costume insult every issue. Cyclops claims to be a representative for the team, and he informs the blob that uh, they're not going to take no for an answer. Isn't that just kidnapping, then? Uh, Well, Blob tells Slim to beat it. Then, Warren and Gene show up to try to convince the blob, and, uh, well, old Dukes takes one look at Gene and decides he'll go anywhere she goes. He grabs her by the arm while Angel just kind of stands there. Scott, however, delivers an optic blast to the blob's back, which actually knocks him over. So, uh, we're giving up on the immovable gimmick already, aren't we? From here, Blob pulls a burning piece of firewood out of a nearby stove and extinguishes the flame with his fist, just to prove that he can. And I tell you, I'm sure Genie was very, very impressed. He decides that, you know what, I will go back with you and visit with the X-Men. And so, we shift scenes back to... 
I'm assuming the danger room, where the blob's immovability is being put to the test. He passes with flying colors and really, really impresses the prof. Now, Blob gets pretty cocky about this, and so Iceman asks if he can conduct a test of his own. I guess Bobby forgot he's only 16. After the professor gives the thumbs up, Iceman encases the Blob's foot in a block of ice, to which Dukes wriggles his big toe and shatters the cube. The professor uses this opportunity to invite the Blob to join the X-Men. The Blob says he don't need no stinking X-Men. To which, get this, Xavier tells him that uh, he cannot be allowed to leave the mansion because he knows the X-Men's secret identities and base of operations. Uh, Maybe you should have thought of that before, Chuck. Xavier commands the X-Men to attack the Blob so that he can wipe those memories from his mind. And so, the next couple of pages see the X-Men try and do just that. Unsuccessfully. Man, I ask you, why can't all evil mutants be weak and easy to beat like Magneto, huh? Now, the Blob winds up escaping, and he makes his way toward a manhole. He then heads down into the sewer, where he can travel the rest of the way back to the city. The X-Men lick their wounds while the Professor kicks himself, figuratively speaking, for assuming that the Blob would jump at the opportunity to join the team. The teens are going to have to find a way to bring the Blob back to the school so Xavier can do the old mind wipe, is uh, kind of the direction we're headed here. So back at the carnival, Fred returns and he enters his boss's trailer. He informs the guy that uh, he is homo superior, and from this point on, he'll be the one giving the orders. Before we know it, the Blob is holding court among the carnies. He tells him he knows all the secrets of the X-Men, and together, they're going to attack them. Just then, Warren flies overhead and is shot at by several of the carnies. He reports everything he just heard back to the professor. Now, Xavier expected the Blob to talk, and so he's hard at work putting together an electronic mass influencer. Now, this is a machine set to optimize his mind-wipe abilities to erase the memories of not only the Blob, but the entire mob of Carnies. He asks Warren to inform the rest of the team that Blob and the Carnies, which is a pretty good name for a band, they're on their way. Angel heads into Beast's room, where it looks like Stan and Jack decided that Hank was going to be the smart one on the team, because he's uh, currently working on some calculus problems and is wearing glasses. Uh, He's also now using some really big words to really hammer the point home. He then heads to the kitchen, where Bobby looks to be making a milkshake out of his own slush. And I know we've seen this plenty of times, but um, it never fails to skeeve me out. I I mean, it's not actually ice cream or anything of the sort. It's just stuff that his body causes to be. And I ain't here to kink shame nobody, but this is kind of gross. Anyway, a giraffe then sticks its head into the window. So uh, we might assume that the kitchen is on the second floor then. And uh, the giraffe then takes a big old bite out of Bobby's me shake. See, uh, now it has a taste for Iceman. Uh, this cannot end well. Outside the window, Bobby sees that the carnies have arrived. Some mooks attempt to battering ram their way in, but Gene just opens a door before they can smash it. They wind up running right into Cyclops' optic blast, and that sends them flying backwards. Elsewhere, some tightrope walkers attempt to make their way into an upstairs window by climbing a very convenient podium that appears to have been erected in Xavier's front lawn and throwing a grapple over to the building. The Beast jumps on this makeshift tightrope, throwing the geeks off their balance. He then dodges a bit of gunfire before coming face-to-face with the Blob. Well, blob ain't in much of a mood for a fight right now, and so uh, he sicks an actual gorilla on Hank, so we're going to have the Beast fighting a beast. Elsewhere again, some cowboys try lassoing Warren, and he deftly dodges, since, uh, I mean, that is his 
entire training repertoire is uh, dodging things, but he is taken down by a pair of human cannonballs. Just then, an elephant comes charging right at the famous Cyclops. A carny on elephant back actually calls him the famous Cyclops. Anyway, Cyclops blasts Babar into the ground, so I guess elephant burgers are on the menu tonight. Unfortunately, the power of this concussive blast was a little too much, and so Scott passes out. And then he's captured in a net. Bobby is then attacked by a couple of carnies wearing parkas, which evidently protects them from, you know, completely from his cold powers. Uh, Gene is elsewhere surrounded by uh, mooks. Now, Xavier is watching this all play out while he tinkers with this influence device, and the blob is just about to celebrate his victory when Cyclops blasts his way free from that net. He then blasts the ground below the blob's feet, which knocks him down. So, uh, wow, it's uh, Cyclops 2, Blob 0 at this point. Off to the side, Beast finishes beating up the gorilla and then is attacked by a human pyramid. Hank bowls right through them, but winds up landing in the arms of the blob. The X-Men are now completely restrained. Um, they, they stuff Scott in a sack. Uh, Jean's blindfolded, Warren and Hank are tied up tight, and Bobby... He's tied up, and he stood below a tiny ring of fire. I mean, a ring of fire would be dangerous to any of the X-Men, right? Not, not just the one made of snow and ice, right? Uh, whatever. <laughs> now, from here, Blob and the Carnies storm the mansion. Charles calls down to Jean to tell her that, uh, you know what? It's not all bad here. She can get them out of this. And so she teleport kinetically, unties her blindfold, and then pulls a knife from the convenient knife-thrower truck that some of the carnies arrived in, and she cuts our heroes free. Back inside, the blob has made it to Xavier's study. Although the floor looks like it's tiled in one panel, the very next panel shows that there's actually a great big rug in the room. Now, it's important because this rug is something that Jean uses her TK on to wrap many of the carnies up into. Cyclops then does his thing where he blasts the floor beneath the blob's feet, and the blob falls down and he's trapped. Nearby, Warren and Hank fight off more carnies and wind up taking them out with relative ease. From here, Professor X flips the switch on his device and... mind wipes all the baddies. The blob has completely forgotten everything, and he suggests that he and the carnies get back to the circus before they get fired. He doesn't bother to ask why he's in a school in Westchester, which... I tell you, is fairly convenient for allowing us to end this issue. We wrap up by touting Professor X's vast mental abilities, if not his poor judgment. And we're out of here. Next episode of The Essential X-Lapse will introduce us to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So, uh, all you WandaVision fans, you'll, uh, that's gonna be a huge episode for us here on the show, isn't it? Well, uh, well, that's a talk for next time. Now, let's talk about Issue number three here. Um, okay, uh, I gotta ask here. Uh, another mind wipe? <laughs> I mean, it's three issues. Two of them have ended in a mind wipe. Um, does Xavier even need the X-Men? Part of me feels like he's only keeping them around as like a cheering section and for him to, uh, well, kind of perv on. Which uh, brings us to uh, another big takeaway from this issue. It's only one panel. Right, it's only one panel, one thought balloon where Professor X talks about his uh, love for Jean Grey, who I don't know what her age is here. I'm assuming she's somewhere between 16 and 18. Um, two of those numbers make this illegal. <laughs> one of those numbers just makes it creepy. So I, uh, huh, I'm glad this uh, kind of gets backburnered for a 
very long time. I don't know that it comes back until very, very late. Uh, like, I want to say somewhere in the 90s, somebody remembered that this was a uh, thing. So they brought it, uh, or at least mentioned it. I, it might have happened during Onslaught. I can't remember. It's been a long, long time since I've read that. But just a uh, an unfortunate bit of business here. We can... Maybe we'll pretend that it just, that thought balloon was attached to someone else. I don't know. Uh, now, the main takeaway here, I mean, the creepiness is funny. The mind wipe, yeah, I mean, that is what it is. And I think it's not the last we're going to see of mind wipes. But the main takeaway for this issue is that it's starting to feel like X-Men. Uh, personalities are starting to take shape here. Um, Scott gets his actual first name. You know, he's no longer just Slim Summers. He's Scott Summers. And, I mean, he's overwhelmed by worry and responsibility over his mutant power. I mean, this is the angsty Scott that that we know and uh, either love or tolerate. So it's, you know, he's coming into, he's coming into form here. Gene seems to be smitten with Scott, which uh, is right in my wheelhouse. I've, uh, I've talked a few times about my very favorite Uncanny X-Men issue, or one of my very favorites. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 308, where uh, Scott, uh, where Gene actually proposes to Scott over Thanksgiving. And we get a flashback to the Silver Age, and uh, we find out that these feelings were, you know, they were there pretty much from the start. So it's nice to actually see that here, like in practice, in the actual early issues here, and not just in a flashback. So I really dug that. Uh, Angel, he's the uh, good-looking rich kid. He's got a sports car, you know. Um, that's... I guess we can call that characterization, right? Uh, Beast, he's insanely brainy, you know, which wasn't the impression I think any of us would have had in reading the first two issues. So he's becoming, you know, the more erudite and uh, well-read Henry McCoy that uh, we all know now, uh, except he's not an evil mad scientist like he is today. So I think I would say this is the first issue where we're reading the X-Men and it feels... Like the X-Men that we know now, right? They're not just ciphers. They're not just uh, they're not just people in costumes. These are you know the personalities that we all know these days. So it's nice to see that um, the the Blob fight. Um, I don't remember if I said this in the previous episode, but um, the these early X-Men stories are a little formulaic. I mean, a new threat is identified. The X-Men confront this threat. They lose. Then they have to do it again And uh, you flip a coin Whether or not they're going to beat the bad guy Or Professor X is going to mind wipe them Because that's <laughs> the direction that these things go But um, overall I had a really good time with this I mean it's Silver Age silliness But sometimes that's exactly what the doctor ordered here So having a really good time And I hope you are as well But uh, that's all I got to say about the third issue of X-Men But we do have some mail So let's hop into it here we got a letter from our friend Professor Allen. He says, I'm glad you came up with a plan to keep the daily show going even when you have a delivery delay or when you finally get caught up to current day. Daily episodes is an impressive accomplishment. You should be proud of yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, um, usually when people say something like that, I'll revert to my self-depreciation and be like, oh, no, I'm just crazy. You know, it's insanity. <laughs> that leads me to do this. But, um... It's, I mean, there's a little bit of that in there, but um, these shows were never meant to be daily. You know, um, X-Lapsed, the main X-Lapsed show, is never going to be a daily show. It's just that it takes a whole lot for me to actually start something, you know, um, to hit record or to open up a new blog post. 
it takes a lot for me to actually commit to doing such a thing. So by the time I'm actually committed and ready to do it, I'm just so welled up with excitement and passion for whatever project it is that I just can't hold myself back. So when X-Lapse number one hit, I figured it was going to be a weekly show, 12 episodes long, just looking at House of X and Powers of X, and that was just going to be it. I finished the first issue, did the episode, and was like, I don't want to wait. And I read the second issue, wrote the script, and uh, was like, okay, I, I, I recorded it, and I, I set it ahead. I scheduled it for a week later, and then I wanted to read the third issue, and uh, the fourth, and the fifth. And so I changed my schedule. I pulled it like, okay, screw it. I'm dropping it tomorrow. And then I'll, if, I, if I do the next one the third day, and then the fourth day, it'll that's just the way it'll be. And... By the time I was able to actually catch my breath, we had a we had a daily show. And at the end of the day, you know, it is something that I'm proud of here because it's a a sign of uh, stick-to-itiveness, and uh, that's not one of my <laughs> that's not one of my better traits here. My stick-to-itiveness. I've got piles and piles and drawers and drawers and notebooks and notebooks full of things that I started and never finished. So it's nice to uh, we're not finished yet, but it's nice to have this streak going. So thank you so much. Uh, Alan continues, I enjoyed the first two essential episodes, and I look forward to more. I've never been a regular reader of the X-Men, although I have read some of these original stories, and they are very, very strange. (laughs) Take care and keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And yes, they are. They are very, very strange, as uh, (laughs) evidenced today with the the creepy commentary from the professor and, uh, well, just all the Silver Age silliness. But thank you so, so much for writing it, Alan. It really, really means a lot. Next, we got a note from uh, Doc Strange, Billy, our pal. He says, hey, Chris, love the coverage for the old school X-Men. I really enjoyed the first two episodes and hope you continue for a long time. Looking back at some of the content, it doesn't hold up well. And even the better Roy Thomas Neil Adams material couldn't stop cancellation eventually. But what we got afterwards made the wait made it worth the wait for me. I'd love to hear you talk about the reboot in 1975 and forward. Cheers. And well, that's the plan. We will get there eventually. Uh, I think this is our uh, this is our there's a there's a principle in psychology, um, behavioral uh, modification known as the premac principle, and it's uh, something that you could use in in a lot of your walks of life. Here, um, I used it personally uh, for curbing evening snacking uh, as I'm working on my diet here. The premac principle says that you do when you have something you want, you make yourself do something less desirable before you get there, right? So if I were to decide that you know it's nine o'clock at night and I want I want a handful of Oreos, it's like okay, well I can have those Oreos, but first I got to run a mile. It's like well I don't want to run a mile, so I'm not going to have those Oreos tonight. Or, if I do really want them, I'm going to force myself to exercise, to work up my metabolism, to hopefully burn off some of those Oreos, right? Here, I mean, I can't wait to talk about the Claremont stuff, but we got to get there. So our pre-Mac principle here is that we're going to do something that I think we're going to have fun with the first 66. And I haven't decided if we're going to go from 66 into Burns Hidden Years or not. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it more as we get closer and closer. But um, this is our, uh, this is paying our dues before we get to the, uh, you know, to the promised land of the Claremont era. So 
I think it's going to be fun either way. It's just uh, some of these issues will be will be a slog, but we will, uh, as always, endeavor to make the best of it. But thank you so much for writing in, Billy, and thank you so much for listening. Finally, I got a short note from uh, my moratory brother-in-arms here, Chris Bailey. He says, dude, Essential x Lapsed is excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much here. Um, as always, I, I every time I start a new project, I always kind of preface, sometimes in my own head, sometimes out loud, that uh, I don't know if it's going to work, you know, and I worry, and I worry about everything. I, I worry that I'm doing, I mean, these are, I mean, they're not the greatest stories, but they are seminal stories. They're foundational stories, not only for the X-Men, but for the greater Marvel Universe, right? And I always worry that I can't do them the service that they require. I, I feel like I, uh, I don't have the ability as an orator or an analyst to uh, give them exactly the treatment they need. So I always worry. So, but so far, I haven't, uh, haven't heard a bad word yet. So that's really, really cool. And um, I'm actually quite happy with uh, their performance so far. So I want to thank everybody so much for being a part of this with me. And uh, I think this is going to be a fun way to to get us between months in the uh, the greater X-lapsed universe here, uh, in between shipments. So thank you all so much. Um, I should probably do plugs and let you all get on with the rest of your day. So if you'd like to write in, be part of the show, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet provides noise and sound. And if you dig what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to share the show. Spread the word. Word of mouth is, uh, is a good thing. So uh, that would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend a little bit of your day with me today talking about silly old Silver Age comics. So thank you all so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.